This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, oh, oh wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R 102.7 FM. Welcome, 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 kiddies, to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, 3 Triple R's weekly discussion on big picture issues and the search for small local solutions. Tonight on Greening the Apocalypse, we will be speaking with Miriam Issa, who carries many arrows in her quiver, including author, storyteller, public speaker, community building cook and gardener, and advocate for cultural diversity, social justice and equality. Let's hope we can fit all of that in. As always, co-conspirator and aficionado of the fine things in life, Mr. Adam Grubb. Bushy. I'm splendidly well. How good's autumn? Autumn is wonderful. Yeah. Today w- was... Were like, you in it? I got a little bit amongst it. <laughs> I didn't get out of the backyard, but... Uh, yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah. In it and out. And it was all free. It was lovely. In the rotating chair, the fab Glaswegian, urban planner and co-constructor of an outrageously cute baby boy, Kate Dundas, a.k.a. Dundino. No. Oh, Dundino. Dundina. It's not going to stick, Colsey. No, it doesn't. Well, Colsey stuck quite well, but can you be Dundee? No, oh, friends have tried Dundee. Not we'll just call you Katie. Crocodile. Just call me Kate, yeah. Cro- we'll Crocodile. Crocodile. Dundee. <laughs> 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 I got dumbass for a while. Oh, boo. Because Dundas, you know. Ah, children <laughs> can be so cruel. <laughs> no, that was your husband. <laughs> Dan. <laughs> As always, the puzzle assembler who always manages to find the corner pieces in the straight edge bits, the two-wheeled one, Jed McCartney. How art thou? Well, thank you. Evening all. Bike news, you got a bit of? Uh, bike news, uh, Milan San Remo, the first of the uh, spring classics last weekend, mm-hmm. uh, won by a Frenchman called Arnaud de Mer, and there was a bit of controversy because a couple of blokes reckoned he was uh, hanging onto the car going up a hill at oh, one right. stage, which is a bit... Naughty. I know the mayor sounds like a kind of thing like let me into the club. I know the mayor. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why he was like thought he could cheat and get away with it. <laughs> Maybe. What kind of mayor do you need to know? The mayor of Funk Town. The mayor of Funk Town. Yeah. To a club. The mayor of Bike Boogie Town. Yeah. Well, this guy crashed with a few other people who ended up nowhere near the front, but he ended up at the front and won the race. So the rest good of on them him. didn't know the mayor. Yeah. yeah that's right. <laughs> nothing like a quick three hundred k's in a day. Oh, really? Yeah, is that a thing you can do? That's, that was what the race is at 300 k's. It was slightly less because it had been a landslide, so it was only 295. Soft. Yeah. Soft. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, who would like to go first in discussing what has captured their eye this week? Rock, paper, paper rock. No. All right. uh, I'll have a shot. Awesome. Um, oh, speaking of rocks and scissors and uh, snakes and uh, all things outside I was... Caught catching up on this SBS doco this week called Kids Gone Wild and it's about the Danish uh, forest kindergartens where they get uh, kids at kindergarten age and they take them outside every day, rain, hail, negative 20, 
or shine. Mm. And it was pretty incredible seeing these kids up these, uh, like, five or six metres up trees, these tiny kids. <laughs> Jesus. And... Um, and just mucking around in puddles and sliding around and um, just having a crazy good time. And they're teaching them knife skills and they're just sitting back whittling <laughs> with, the, with the very, very sharp knives. And they look like they're making um, traps for the other kids to feel in with, fall into with these sharpened sticks. I don't oh, know if dear. they do that. Um, and but they were saying that they've in I think the guy that was running it said that in seven years he's never had to take a kid to a hospital except on the one case when one of the parents ran over the foot of one of them. <laughs> oh, so you get the parents involved. Yeah, and uh, it, it it's pretty confronting seeing this stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the women that was running it, I read one of the articles she wrote, and she points out that kids that are spend a lot of time outside research is showing that they have better brain development better bone and muscle development better social and cognitive development emotional well-being and less illness Mm. as well as having a damn fine time she's emphasizing too the fact that just that they learn what it's like to be cold and um, they learn you know a little bit of emotional hardship actually puts them in really or at least physical hardship, um, puts them in um, good stead for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. There's a school in New Zealand uh, where the kids go out at lunchtime and there are no rules in the playground and they give them building materials. Mm. So they cooperate to build cubby houses and they climb up trees and all this sort of stuff and if they get stuck up there they don't rescue them they say well you got up there work out how to get down (laughs) or you'll not get any pudding same thing they've had a couple of minor injuries but Mm. um the kids are their development is just so great they reckon yeah Yeah. bring it i had to chat to the doctor today because the little bloke shrubby um got nipped yesterday by a jumping jack ant and it's the second time and this time the reaction was sort of a bit amplified so I was at the doctor today and they said, well, look, at this point, you know, he's not EpiPen zone yet, but you need to keep some Claritine around the house. Cool. And, um, and she said, and really, you've just got to manage the situation. So he's going to have to really get used to wearing shoes outside. And, and I'm just sitting there and I'm feeling flatter and flatter thinking he's, he's not going to go for this at all. And this is a kid who he, he, he go, went and gathered every piece of broken blue stuff he could find to make a bowerbird's nest. He's not putting on shoes anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They're, they're starting to do it a little bit in Melbourne. I was at the Bush Kinder, the Merry Creek, this morning with Tom, mm. and he ate a lot of mud, a lot of Merry Creek mud. Yeah, yeah I don't know if I'd recommend that from a <laughs> yeah. leg-level perspective. He did eat Shame. a lot. Shame. He's loving it, <laughs> loving the mud, and he was stealing other children's pears. Sorry, mother of pear child. <laughs> <laughs> Getting early into a life of crime. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, That leads on beautifully to your article, Kate. It does. Let me just retrieve it. Um, So my article is on a website called raisedgood.com and the title of it is Simplifying Childhood May Protect Against Mental Health Issues. So the author starts by talking about her dad So when her dad was growing up, he only had this one jumper that he loved and protected and he cared for. You know, he he fixed the holes. Um, If he lost it when he was a kid, he'd have to go back and find it. And he he really understood how precious this one jumper that he had was. 
unlike uh, our household, we have many jumpers, and you know, if you lose it, you're just like, oh, my abs have got another one. Sounds a little bit <laughs> like like Headley off the party show, Jed. He has one jumper. <laughs> it's a very classic jumper, but there's only one. <laughs> Um, so the article talks about, and back in those days, he had everything he needed uh, and not a lot more. And of course, that's very, very different now. So there's a book called Simplicity Parenting by Kim John. Um, and he talks about a study that was done where the lives of all of these children with attention deficit disorder was simplified. So they took all their toys away and left them with just a few, only a few possessions. And within four months, 68% of these kids went from being clinically dysfunctional to clinically functional. And the kids displayed 37% increase in academic and cognitive aptitude. Whoa, by having less toys. By having less stuff, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, wow, that's actually really incredible, incredible isn't that's, it? Yeah. yeah. There'd be no... I mean, I've never heard of any kind of therapy that has anything like that effect. Yeah, I know. Well, that's what it's saying in a, about drugs as well. Yeah. And there's another um, discussion in this book around this guy, Payne, volunteered in refugee camps in Jakarta. And he's saying the children there were dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. They were jumpy, nervous, hypervigilant and aw- uh, wary of anything new. And then later he ran this practice in England and he saw all these rich English kids with these same behavioural tendencies. And he's like, why? Why are they showing the same tendencies as these kids in a war zone? Um, and he's saying, well, they were kind of living in a war zone of sorts, privy to their parents' fears, drives, ambitions and all this stuff. They were just freaking out and they were suffering with this cumulative stress reaction of just having too much stuff. So... We're Whoa. messing up our kids. This, yeah, like so. When you give that birthday present, yeah, or the Christmas present, really what good. is it? It's like <laughs> it's an act of of psychological trauma. Is yeah, that what psychological trauma? Well, so yeah, we're I'm, I'm going to have. It's so incredible. I'm going to have to look up the references and everything on that. Yeah, look up the references. You do. You do the um, reference checking, Adam. Yeah. I just like to skim the surface. You just <laughs> delve, delve deep. <laughs> Amazing. Oh. I was going to go to an article that I read, but I think there's a bit of momentum with what we're talking about. Now, what, let's discuss childhood stuff that stands out to us as the best. What, Kate, you talked earlier off air, quite an amazing story about your sister who thought she was a horse. <laughs> oh, sorry, Sid, I'm sorry. No, but, no, but that's great. You know, <laughs> so, because yeah. if you've got a toy horse to play with, you're just going to play with a toy horse. But if you <laughs> become the pony... Oh, so my sister, she just loved horses so much. Hmm. And her and our neighbour, Angie, we were just, we, we played outside all the time. Um, but my sister, sorry, she <laughs> she played as it, like she she really loved horses. Hmm. So she she used to construct all of these jumps in the garden and she could, she'd go around on all fours. <laughs> Something real terrible. She'd go around <laughs> on all fours and she could jump really high across, maybe like one and a half metres off hmm. the ground on all fours like a horse. Yeah. I think that's just brilliant. <laughs> I because I grew up in the Dandenong, so there was a lot of space out there. So there was a lot of pony people, and, and yeah. I remember being barrelled over by the Pony Express running yeah. around the corner at school. I used to put on plays with another neighbour, and then go round to my other neighbours and make them all come around and pay me to watch plays that I'd invented in yeah. my head. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Could you, so easy to so easy to imagine. Could you put any of that down to like? Were you a big outdoors kid? Was it? A, 
you know, or like an all-weather... What Can you put that sort of sense well, of... As de- well, I suppose in uh, Scotland, so... Mm. you, uh, Yeah, we were out all the time. No, I mean, um, there's not a country renowned for its seaside not, holidays. Yeah, you know, we, it wasn't like, oh, let's wait for a sunny day, because you'd be waiting for, like, seven months. <laughs> <laughs> and it'd be over in an hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, what about you, Ag? I mean, what, it was... I grew up on a farm, so, yeah, we had, like, a river to go... Oh, a creek to go jump in and mm. fish in and um, thistles to hack back with... Uh, my, yeah, my grandma gave me a um, machete for one of my fairly early birthdays. And Beautiful. Thanks, Mum. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, you know, I had, yeah, the full full deal. Yeah. Just like feral cats and frogs and just all, all the... That was the makeup of my existence. Rocks and crowbars and... Yeah. yeah I've, I had a sort of similar... I feel as though... Uh, yeah, because we had some land up in the Dandenong Ranges. Trees were my big thing. So you guys, you hear each year just before Christmas at the Corner Hotel, there's that Dan and Al gig. So the Al in that is Al McGuinness. And I remember as a very, very young kid, he taught me to climb trees. Thanks, Al McGuinness, if you're listening. And so we, at a very young age, were up some very tall trees. We had some big old oaks, some yukis, all sorts of stuff. We had this big old row of pine trees when it had been much larger farmland. And I remember me and my brother, and I reckon he was probably four and I was about six, and putting tools and stuff into a little backpack to carry up the tree to put treehouse in. And seriously, the nails probably weren't big enough to really hold the stuff in place, but it seemed to work for a while. But then it was that funny thing that as I went through life and some years ago I was at a party with some friends and my little lad then just turned five, I guess, yells out this, Hey, Dad, do you know where I am? And I sort of thought, oh, he's hiding somewhere. And he was at least, you know, 10 metres up a tree. And I had that instant of like, Oh, shit! And then this little voice on my shoulder said, it's exactly what you were doing at that age. And I completely relaxed. And yeah. I did go up and help him down because he was struggling a bit. Yeah. Um, and it was getting a bit breezy and a bit cold. But um, I think those, yeah, there's something to be said for letting the, the wildness take hold in kids. Yeah. You know, less screen and more sky. Yeah. Definitely. You, yeah. Might, you might become a pony. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I'm sure all's forgiven. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. This evening's guest is a woman who carries many arrows in her quiver, including author, storyteller and public speaker, community building cook and gardener, advocate for cultural diversity, social justice and equality. She also manages to share her time with her husband and five children and her bio says that Mariam speaks English, Somali, Swahili and Arabic and in all languages she speaks her mind. It was, is with enormous pleasure that we say hello to Mariam Issa. Hello everyone. Thank well, you for having me. A pleasure. Um, like many who have come to reside in Melbourne, you fled conflict. As a refugee, your story is one of incredible resilience and determination. Are you able to take us back uh, for a moment to 1991 when you first left Somalia for Australia and give us a bit of an insight to your story? Yeah, um, I left Somalia in 1991. I had two boys and I was pregnant with my third child. I was 24 years of age. And, yeah, the war sort of caught us. Um, We didn't really think that it was going to last that long. 
And at the time, my husband wasn't with me in Mogadishu, so I had to flee by myself with my children. And um, But I always thought that I was a very lucky refugee because when I was leaving Somalia, I was going to Kenya where my family resided. So... I went on a boat um, which had about 140 people, and I don't even think it would pass as a boat <laughs> in Australian standards. And it was very tough, three days and three nights, and I think that gave me a very uh, spiritual awakening because I, at that time in space, was really a time of, of hardship but it was also a time of reflection to be suspended in the sea nothing but just water around you and not mm. seeing anything else was you know um, a time wow <laughs> that is uh, was, and so then those experiences how have experiences like that and, and since then motivated you to become a community builder well, I came to the West, I think, eight years of displacement, and then I came to Australia about 1998. And again, I was pregnant with my fifth child at this time, and I had four children with my husband. Came to the Western world knowing nothing about the Western culture. And um, I think my awakening moment really was... In, in the community that I came into, I didn't want anything to do with them and they didn't want anything to do with me because um, the where we resided was in East Brighton where it's a very Anglo area and a very affluent area. And I think we were the first Africans, so we were very black and very poor, so you mm. can feel our predicament. And I think what, you know, we had, um, we couldn't interact with each other because we, I feel that culture is a currency and mm. our currency was uh, was inflated at that time we could not buy anything with it because nobody knew about it yeah. and so i think you know we we tried hard but it, you know it sort of didn't work but when my 4 year old daughter who was born in the heart of community reached kinder i think that's when my really awakening happened because uh we went to a kinder and nothing really bad was said but that mm. day i realized that communication is way more than words mm. because we came out feeling something was said mm. and i felt it as an adult but i didn't think that a four-year-old would and when we came out she said mom did they not want me because i'm black Oh. And I think that was what made me realize that community is very important. And also coming from a communal culture, mm. which yeah. was, you know, uh, you're always dependent on your community and you know so much of yourself within your community. So I felt that I really wanted to get to know this community. And that's when I went, mm. yeah, and did a very extensive integration. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, Perhaps um, it seems like maybe you see relative safety in Australia, but some community aspects lacking. Maybe there's things you could tell us about what you've, besides the outsider status, but perhaps that you've observed in Australia more generally um, that we have lacking that you had left behind in Somalia. 
Oh yeah, I I had a lot of observations to make. I first of all, what helped me really helped me was that I was a very curious woman, and I think the Western woman sort of you know put a mirror up for me, and I thought, well, you know, I was intrigued with her. I was intrigued with this woman who had the lycra on, and she was pushing her pram, and she was you know walking her dog, and I felt wow, you know, what a resilient. And walking very quickly. Yes. Oh, she was running in in some instances, and I felt, whoa, what a resilient woman. And at that time, I couldn't even pr- push my pram <laughs> properly. So, yeah, so, so she just sort of, and she was everywhere. She was in, you know, administration. She was my doctor. She was everywhere. And I really wanted to know what her secret was. And that's what prompted me to go and work in Brighton Homes as a cleaner. And I really wanted to see her in her natural habitat. And I <laughs> wanted to see how she parented and how she did this. And yeah, I think I took a lot of insights from those homes because I cleaned really beautiful and big homes mm. and most often not many people lived in them mm. and there was not much to clean and then I went into aged care and I also worked in aged care settings and I felt that you know the wisdom of the community was away from the community mm. and then I was reading and listening about you know children about 10 years of age committing suicide, what do they know about life? So those things kind of prompted me into understanding because at that stage I was so intrigued with this western culture and I almost converted into it and I, I understood that you know even I missed the glory and the glamour and the beauty that I saw there was a less apparent truth here as well so that's what prompted and, and made me understand that I wasn't here randomly and no one is ever anywhere randomly anyway so I understood that I was a seed who germinated, you know, which germinated in in Brighton, and I felt that I came here to remember what I had lost of myself, and to remind what others had lost of themselves. So it was um, give and take. So I was here to, you know, uh, talk about my community and what community really did for uh, for people. So mm. it's fantastic. Um, so, Mariam, you founded a not-for-profit organisation called RAW, Resilient Aspiring Women, in 2012. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think in my journey, and I realised that there was the biggest issue that was missing was trust. And um, I wanted to create a sense of trust. And what a better way than open my own backyard as a community garden. So I did a permaculture course and I got to know a very beautiful woman called Carol Hensley, who was a permaculture designer, who came and helped me. And then there was another German, a beautiful woman who was Katrina Kohn's and she came on board as well and so we collaborated to create a community around us and then we went to Rotarians and you know and it was just amazing how people were so hungry for for community and we got so much help and uh, our community garden is really thriving and beautiful at the moment but what raw really means if you read it backwards it means war and what I realized is that as women, we have a lot of wars going inside of us. And when we let go of these wars, that's when we tap into our resilience and our aspirations. And it's just amazing what you can do with with that. Wow. <laughs> You're amazing. 
So, uh, what? So, you the is the garden? Have you found with uh, having opened up your garden as a point to connect to other people? Is that led to other? capacity to they connect further and spread out through the community was that the best starting point yeah, looking back on it it was and i think coming from an oral culture of storytelling i felt that you know stories are one of the most important things and uh within each and every one of us i think there is a powerful and uh brilliant story and when we share these stories i think that's when we strengthen and and, and create adaptable communities and so storytelling really helped so much because we have uh, different cultures come to the garden and tell stories and then we also have food and we never go wrong with food you know it's mm. the best social catalyst i i know so from sharing food to telling stories to connecting with earth again and connecting with not only the human community but also the animal community where we have chooks in the backyard we have uh, two cats in our home and then we have the birds and the interaction of nature I think just reminds us of what we have we have lost of ourselves mm. um, so did you have uh, did you have gardening experience previously? Um, not in my Somali traditions but I grew up in a small town called Malindi and that's my hometown in Kenya and I lived with the natives there called Giriamas. Mm. So the Giriama woman actually going back to uh, the Lycra woman, I think the Giriama woman again reminded me this is these are women who three in the morning wake up they, they cultivate their own plot of land and then three in the morning they wake up and they put all their produce in a really big basket and put it over their heads and tie their children behind in 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 their backs and would walk like eight to ten kilometers to sell their produce and on the way they would be singing or maybe even crocheting and so i felt that you know uh, after a little while wait a minute, the African woman is also resilient, you know, so that is, you know, uh, I grew up with those people, so I went to school, you know, in cornfields, like, which were taller than myself, Uh, went to, to school under a mango tree, and I came from a very exotic, tropical uh, country, so it was yeah. really, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, well, I don't think mm. um, Lycra woman or myself would handle that very long. Are <laughs> 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 oh, you underselling yourself, Adam? <laughs> um, after this next track, it would be good to come back and um, really uh, dig into the community garden, if you'll pardon the pun. I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio, greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, free triple R. You're on Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R. Right now in the studio, we're going to continue talking to the fabulous Mariam Issa. She, for those who have tuned in late, is an author, storyteller, public speaker, community gardener, community builder, residing in the affluent suburb of East Brighton and arriving there as somewhat of an outsider from a Somali refugee background. And so you were feeling very much an outsider. Mm. You started conducting anthropology <laughs> by invading people's houses, houses. as a cleaner. Um, but at some point, you, you, instead of like closing in, you've opened up your very garden as a community garden. 
and invited people into your space. So what led you to that point and how have you found the experience? Well, I find the experience really fulfilling, but what I think led me to it was I felt a cr- um, very strong uh, you know, connection to this community, and mm. I felt that I really needed uh, to do my little bit, and I felt that, you know, at that stage I was also connecting uh, to the earth myself and I wanted some company. <laughs> so <laughs> what a better way to, you know, uh, bring the community together. Mm. So, um, but I guess it was just an awakening from my part, but it was also a way of um, feeling that this needed to be done. Um, but if I really go back, my mother, I remember that my mother migrated from Somalia and she came to uh, she came to, to Kenya, which is a very different uh, culture, very different uh, language. And so I remember as a child how hard it was for our family to fit in. Mm. And I think that is, you know, I, I wanted for my children to never f- look over their shoulder and to really feel that they're different mm. from uh, this community that they have come into. And I also felt that... Uh, Community was very important to me and very important in our culture. And as we say in our African culture, we say it takes a whole village to raise a child. Mm -hmm. So I needed uh, the village, the community to raise the children (laughs) with me. So Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, that's what prompted, prompted it. So how did the Bayside suburb of these lycra-clad ladies in Brighton, a somewhat conservative Anglo area, respond to a woman from Somalia planting an edible garden instead of clipped hedges and lawns? And how long did it take for your neighbours to engage with what you were doing and start coming into the garden? I think the first year was really hard because the first year, not hard in the sense that, you know, there was a lot of people wanting to help and there was a lot of people coming on board, but there was very le- uh, few people using the garden. And then as a speaker, I think I would go to different places and I talk a lot about the garden and then people started to come from other communities as well uh, to, you know, to the garden. And then the garden started producing <laughs> uh, food. And so I think that's when it started all happening. I think the food sort of, you know, attracts people. And then we had... Um, friends started talking and before you know it and we were also I think very lucky because we I think two years ago we were um, we had a television clip from uh, Gardening Australia Uh. so that was also uh, an amazing you know uh, promotion for us Mm -hmm. yeah so and it was also uh, getting to know to know each other and because it's in my backyard people were a bit wary of going to someone's house you know and that was the hard but the hard bit but now it's it's different now it's a really big community where people come in and sort of you know the trust is is achieved and i think what makes it even more beautiful in my perspective is we have six olive trees as our fence we don't have those big 
you know high fences mm. we have uh, the olive trees and in the Quran there is an ayah that says the olive tree is a tree of neither the east nor the west Aww. so it's sort of a bridging tree and it's and also mm. when we started the garden we started with intentions we set it with intentions mm. and we asked everyone who adapted a tree because the trees that are in the garden were adapted by community members they came and they planted their tree and they had an intention for it so the first tree that was planted by my mother-in-law who happened to be the elder uh, present that day said I want my tree to be a tree of abundance and it's so amazing that that same year that tree was a, uh, an apple tree it had an abundance of fruit on it so intentions Beautiful. do come true <laughs> when you were talking about a, a bridge builder just then uh, what's the, the age range you, you, get, you talk about the elders you're getting there's a lot of kids coming in and getting involved like kids not even show, necessarily showing up with their parents it's kids on their own what's the yeah we have school children coming and we have a lot of activities with with school children mm. we don't get children from the streets I never see children on the streets on their own <laughs> these days not yeah. enough small not enough so, yeah <laughs> so uh, but parents yeah do come with their children and especially on storytelling days mm. uh, it's a family so and the tr- you know the garden is not used only by women although the organization is called the resilient aspiring women we do have uh we you know we we invite our men as well and we have a name for them they are our rams our resilient aspiring men so <laughs> <laughs> they come and they do the hard bit of work you know like building our chupens and building our pavilion and things like that so beautiful yeah um we had a, a very good chat last year with a lady named Peter Christensen, and she works with Cultivating Communities. And she was mentioning that uh, in the 1970s, uh, various migrants from around the world came to Australia, often with um, seeds um, stitched into the hems of their clothing, and that now those plants only exist in a very small and, and limited location. Have you got any examples of, of some unique plants that have been embraced in your community garden as part of people's cultural heritage? We actually have a really big banana tree growing in my backyard and it has like three big hands at the moment of of bananas on Mm. it. And we took that on as a challenge because someone came and said, well, you know, in the Melbourne weather, you you can't have bananas. And we sort of tried it and it, it, it worked. So we have bananas, we have turmeric. Okay. We're growing turmeric, we're growing cardamom. Which is which are all tropical uh, mm. fruit, but they are growing in the garden. And the changing climate. The changing climate, yeah. Or um, maybe it's the intention. No. It could indeed be. Uh, you mentioned the storytelling evenings. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about about those or other events that you have in the garden? Yes, we have the storytelling actually on the, I think it's the 3rd of uh, April on a Sunday. We have a storytelling session coming mm. up. Uh, we have collaborated with the Storytellers Australia and they are a group of oral storytellers and they come to the garden and tell stories. And we have different cultural groups telling uh, different stories from back home. And um, I do tell stories of, of African descent. Mm-hmm. and But we have also things called like Shah and Sheko. You know, back home we had storytelling and tea. 
And so we brought this concept to the garden as well. And every Friday evening, uh, our mothers and, you know, you would dress up and then you would go for a storytelling session with the community. And so we kind of uh, have those storytelling sessions as well, uh, cultural storytelling. So it's... Fantastic. We had a Chilean one, one of the, um, they came and told us the stories of the Mapuche natives of Chile, mm-hmm. which I would never have known about if I had it not been for, you know, uh, the garden. So I think we bring a lot of treasures. Different people come and they bring different stories. And I think, I think we should forget about history and create our story. Beautifully said. <laughs> yeah. You were talking earlier about when you were working in the um, old people homes and how the elders in our communities tend to be away mm. and not integrated and not, you know, not able to share their own stories and often very lonely. Um, what are your um, what are your ideas about trying to remedy that situation? <laughs> Um, I think it is actually, you know, all these cultures coming together. I think things are are becoming different now and people are starting to care for their elders. But uh, it is very disheartening, really, to have uh, your elders away from the elder. Because I remember a story. I asked my mother one time, I said, Mom, why do you love your grandchildren more than you love us? And she said, my darling, you are the bone and my grandchild is the bone marrow. So it's like to keep the elders away from that, you know, the space of of, and and to just let them tell. It's sort of telling them, you know, you're no use anymore. Just Mm. you're ready to die or to, you you know, Mm. and it's the time that they have invested in you to really look forward to see the the flower of your seeds. And so it's it's very sad that it's you know and i'm just hoping the little stories that we share will remedy this one day mm. and that it will change things indeed mm. um you've got a book out a resilient life um do you want to just touch on the book a bit and uh the book is a gem i would say because it's i the book <laughs> <laughs> It, it is a resilient life, and it, it's about my experiences, and it actually really talks about the potential that is that is inherent in humanity, in the human spirit. Because, and had you asked, had you told me that this would be my life one day, I would never have believed you a few years, ago, you know, uh, seventeen years ago. So the transformation, I haven't changed. I've transformed. So. I share the possibility in mm. in the book and I talk a lot of things. I talk about parenting in the West, for instance, how different it was to parent in the West and how different it was to be, a, uh, you know, a Somali woman in, in the West. So I talk about a lot of different issues. I talk about a lot about community. I talk about uh, my resilience, but also my my optimism mm. that I would not, you know, uh, not the, I'm not the optimist with the half with the half full glass I'm the optimist with um, the overflowing glass Mm. because that's the only place that we can give from 
when your glass is overflowing, that's when you can give. When you have a half full glass, you will always be waiting to fill it. So uh, how my life has changed in service to humanity and in service of, you know, wanting to know and being curious about each other's cultures and uh, understanding the wealth of other cultures and not just portraying, you know, telling the stories of other cultures. Let them tell their stories. And I understood the power of storytelling through that book of uh, of knowing that when you tell a story about someone and you keep telling it, the, the person becomes the story. And so I realized uh, the Western, you know, media and how it portrayed Africa mm. and how, you know, there was poverty and there was nothing to look forward. And at one point, my children actually asked me, Mom, tell us just one thing that we should be proud of our culture. You know, and because of everything that was against us and the way the media portrayed us, I could not find an answer for them. And even at times I found myself, you know, because I bought the story, I found myself telling my children, you know, finish your food. There's children starving in Africa. (laughs) So that's why I say you become the story. And how I, you know, how it clicked for me that I became the story and how I moved from being a victim into anger and then into self-actualization. So the, the three phases of life that we can be caught in, but we can move beyond. So I share all that in my book. You're amazing. Thank you. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Uh, Miriam Issa, you've been our guest this evening, and thank you so much for coming in. What have you got coming up in the uh, um, near future? On the 3rd of April, we have a storytelling com- um, afternoon, so please come along. It's um, Our address is 325 South Road in East Brighton. Magnificent. Thank you so much for coming in. It's been amazing. Thank you for having me. Good and if, if people want to see your website, Miriam? Yep, I'm www.mariamissa.com.au and Great. you can purchase a resilient life from there. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks, Jed, for hitting those buttons in the correct order. Uh, Katie, awesome to see you again. Yes. Uh, uh, maybe I'll just mention, as we were talking earlier about the Bush uh, Bush Kinder, there is the Merry Bush Playgroup, if anyone wants to go along to that. And it's an all-weather outdoor playgroup along the Merry Creek on Tuesdays and Fridays. And you can find it on Facebook. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Adam, what's coming up next week on the show? Next week, we have a return guest, Samuel Alexander. He wrote the book Entropia, which is about a kind of like ecotopia and he inspired people to give him some land and cash <laughs> and to <they> start one <laughs> and they've had a go at it uh in the heart of the latrobe valley and he's going to come and talk about this wonderful experiment uh Urukan, which has been going for a couple of years now awesome awesome bushy's been my name we'll see you next tuesday but until then have all the fun This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.